America needs more people working in home health care, and we need them quickly. With the U.S. elderly population doubling from 40 million to 80 million Americans in the next 20 to 25 years, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is predicting that the job of personal care aid will be the fastest growing job category in the next decade. All of this checks out on paper, but there's just one problem. Working in home health care is unpredictable, underappreciated, and underpaid work. With this in mind, how are we going to get enough Americans interested about caring for the elderly? This is Work in Progress. Keeping an American business alive, it's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. The number one thing that the care pros said to us was, I am called unskilled to my face. There's opportunities here that yes. are untapped. You have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to Work in Progress, a LinkedIn podcast on the future of the world of work. I'm your host, Managing Editor Caroline Fairchild. And I'm Chip Cutter, talking to people across the U.S. about work and what it means to earn a living right now. Chip, a couple of years ago, I had to begin the process of looking for someone to come by just for a few hours to check in on my dad. He's now in his mid-70s and living in Florida with multiple sclerosis. Being a pretty foolish 27-year-old living in San Francisco, I assumed that there was some organized system in place where I could try and find a responsible and trained person to take this job of caring for my dad. But when I started to do the research, I was shocked. Trying to find a personal care aide in Florida, a state that is home to so many of our elderly population, might as well have been impossible. But Caroline, what you found in Florida actually isn't all that unique. The market for care workers across the U.S. is incredibly fragmented. There's lots of different agencies with only a couple of aides working for them. Sometimes these agencies don't even have websites. So figuring out how to find them, much less pay for them, is a real challenge. But in reporting and doing research for this story, we also talked with a number of aides, a number of home care workers across the country. They really surprised me with just the details of what their job is actually like on a day-to-day basis. I talked with Verlin Alexander. She's a home health care worker in California. And she said that the job not only is unpredictable, but that she also just barely gets any respect for doing it. The total lack of respect, like I'll tell people, oh, I work in a in-home support service. Oh, God bless you. Oh, and then you can hear them as they walk away. Oh, wow, she can't do anything else. Taking care of people is hard. And people don't understand that it is very hard. You're dealing with personalities. You're not dealing with something that's cut and dry. Like, I can look at this wall over here while I'm talking to you, and that wall is going to remain constant. When I'm dealing with people, they're not. So they really, really need to take a, a better look at this. And what Verlin told me is that she's had to take on additional jobs. She works as a cashier at Rite Aid for another 30 hours a week. And she says doing all this, working as a home health care aide, working at Rite Aid, she's had to go on welfare, and she still says she struggles to get by. I'm never home before dark, and I'm up at, you know, before 6 a.m. Those are the decisions people make to stay in this business. I can't survive. I'm deserting. I'm like, uh, you know, everybody else is like, okay, I did it as long as I could. The reason I haven't left is because of the emotional attachment to my clients. That's the reason I haven't left. I don't know who's going to come behind me or what they're going to be subjected to. People aren't doing this for the money. They're doing it because they truly care. 
And this is something that I think about constantly with the home health carry that we ended up finding for my dad. We did find someone through care.com. It's one of these sites that matches people with childcare, senior care, and pet care. But honestly, when we found her, it almost felt like we won the lottery. We vetted so many candidates. A lot of them didn't have schedules that matched up. And now that we have this home health care aid in our house, we're doing everything we can to keep her. We're giving her more hours. We're mindful of her commute. We want to make sure that she stays in play because because we know how uncommon it is to find a good match. And it's actually really hard to find someone who wants to stay in the job. Nearly everyone I spoke with said that they're looking to do something else. That was the case for Verlin, who has a master's degree in social work. She says she would love to be able to get out of this, to be able to find a career that simply pays more, that provides a better standard of living. So I think the challenge will be, how do we make caregiving a profession that people want to stick with? We know that by 2040, there's expected to be a shortage of 350,000 paid care providers. That's a really big number, and it shows that we need to be able to find a way to just make this a career that entices people. And our guest this week is using technology to hopefully do just that. He's trying to solve the problem, not only for our aging population, but also for workers like Verlin that we just heard from. Seth Sternberg is the co-founder and CEO of Honor, a service that hopes to modernize the home health care market and make it easier for older adults to remain in their homes. Prior to Honor, Seth was the co-founder and CEO of Mebo, a web communications platform that reached $50 million in revenue. After Mebo was acquired by Google, Seth became a product director working on Google+, Plus as well as Google X. Seth, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to Work in Progress. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. appreciate it. So just to get started, it would be great if you could take us back to that moment you decided to found Honor. What was really the opportunity that you saw with launching a startup in the space? To never have to have the conversation with my mother that was, hey, mom, I'm really sorry, but you have to leave your home. (laughs) So uh, I guess you could say I started a company to avoid a difficult conversation with my mother. What happened was I went to visit her in Connecticut and she picked me up at the airport and she's been a lead foot her whole life getting caught by airplane speed traps, getting caught in Montana, um, which is almost impossible, speeding in Montana. Um, And uh, she's driving slowly, and I was just like, Mom, why are you driving so slowly? And she said, driving's harder than it used to be. And that was how the kind of the like, ooh, I never want to have to have that bad conversation with my mother. How do we help the elderly remain in their homes as they age? And uh, came back, talked to my co-founders about it, and everybody had the same fear around their parents. Everybody was in a slightly different state. And so we decided to uh, start working on Honor. And when we're talking about that fear that you mentioned, obviously, this is a topic that is personally really important to a lot of families across the nation. But when you started looking into the market research about home health care, what did it look like? And what did you find out? Yeah, uh, so it's really large uh, in the United States and in the developed world. It's in the U.S. It's a thirty billion dollar market, and in the rest of the kind of developed world, it's the same market size, just proportional to population. And the market dynamics actually in every country are the same. It's um, no one owns in America more than 0.15 percent of the market, so it's really, really fragmented. Um, and it turns out it's just very hard to scale non medical home care because it is so operationally and logistically complex. Um, Things like if a care pro's car breaks down on the way to an appointment and you really have to get there because, you know, that person's dependent on you to get out of bed or get food or get dressed. You have to like fix that problem in the moment very, very quickly. So the ops will tend to make it very hard to scale. And we saw an opportunity 
to use technology to be able to build a home care company of scale. And with scale, you can start to do really amazing things, both for the customers and for the care pros. So probably the most exciting is just getting the right match. Like care pros want to feel like they're doing a great job. And part of helping care pros do a great job is putting them in the right home for them. So for example, if a care pro is allergic to cats, they should never go to a home with cats. If a customer has dementia, you know, they want a care pro who's trained in dementia and putting a care pro in a home with someone who has dementia who's not trained or experienced in dementia is actually a terrible experience for the care pro too. So scale gives you a bigger pool of customers and care pros to then do the right matching of kind of a lot of nuance between them. This issue of how do we pair the care professionals with the right patients, this is something in talking to a a number of, of home care providers, they say that they feel is just incredibly outdated inefficient and something that they think needs to be changed. I spoke with Tanisha White. She's a home health care aide who lives near Akron, Ohio. And she told me that she gets her assignments by text message and she knows basically nothing else other than the person's name. Well, um, the way my company works is they send out a text message and say we have a lump sum of hours available, like a nine to three. We have a nine to three available. So I will call in and I will say, I want that nine to three. Well, my job would only give me so much about this patient. But when I get to the patient, they didn't say like, oh, this patient can't feed themselves," or, oh, this patient can't do this. This patient can't do this. Or the patient has to have this or the patient has that. Like, I feel like my job lacks into that information. We were talking a a couple hours before she left for her next assignment. She was going to work from 8 to midnight with someone she had never met before. She didn't know if they had any pets. All she knew was this person's name and that she had to put her to bed. Is that part of the issue you're you're hoping to kind of address? Yeah. So before we ever started on her, we interviewed about 100 care pros in Phoenix and in Sacramento. And that story we heard probably 50 times. So it's completely and totally normal that in the normal world, care pros are sent into homes blind. And it's actually just straight up scary. One of the first things we built was a client profile. And the whole point was, okay, care pros should know who they're serving and not just their what they look like so they can identify them, not just their medical conditions, but even what's their most proud moment in their lives so that the care pros have something to talk to the customer about. And then when care pros you know, our offer jobs with Honor, we actually, uh, they have an app and they can see the available jobs and then they choose which ones based on the client profile. You know, they can't actually see the name. They can't see a lot of the PII on the client before they've been matched, but they can see kind of, here's the overall profile of this person. Here's the plan of care for this person. Do you want this or not? So it's kind of taking a system that almost, has the care pros be a little bit helpless, right? Like, hey, do you want these hours? Yes or no? Great, then go serve whatever it is. And you're giving them control over their lives. And I think that's a really big deal to then um, make make people feel like they're successful and um, that they have kind of authority over themselves, if you will. 
And we spoke earlier about how this is a really challenging industry to scale, but it's an industry where we kind of have to scale it really quickly. If you look at BLS data, for example, they're predicting that personal care aid is going to be the fastest growing job category in the next decade. Are you ready for this challenge? Honor is available in 13 cities now. Will that number get bigger anytime soon? This is actually a conversation topic every day uh, inside Honor. Um, there are two about two and a half million care pros in America, and it's the combination of the personal care aides plus the home health aides. And those are really the two job categories that do non-medical home care. When we screen people, we are only accepting somewhere between five and 10%, depending on kind of how good we are at finding the right applicant pools. So the problem is, we have two and a half million people today in America, but Honor would only accept 250,000 of them. And given the growth of the population, you know, BLS is saying it's going to grow, I think, by about a million over the next, I think, 10 years. Almost certainly that's underrepresenting the real need because the elderly are going from 40 million to 80 million over the next 20 to 25 years. And as people live longer, they actually don't live healthier. They actually have more ailments. They're just living longer. So it means that we'll need proportionally more help for people in their homes as they age. So, you know, I would guess bare minimum, we would need to go from the 2.5 million that we're at today to 5 million, right? Just minimally a doubling. But that said, we're thinking about, hey, how do you create care pros, right? There's this narrative out there that technology kills jobs. Um, that may be the case, but Honor actually creates jobs. And so if we can maybe take some of these populations that are um, impacted by, let's say, you know, self-driving trucks or whatever it is, and find people within those populations who could be amazing care pros and turn them into care pros, I think that's what we'll ultimately actually have to do because we will absolutely run out and we feel the tightness today. I think one of the challenges, though, yes, there. this is a, a, a category where there will be job creation, that AI really can't touch this. You want someone who's there helping you. I think, though, one of the challenges that I keep hearing when we're talking with people about this is just, first off, how difficult the job is and how underpaid it is. You keep hearing about kind of all these different elements that are part of it. So I spoke with Edwin Crespo Thomas. He's a 26-year-old personal care aide who lives in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Like a lot of people I spoke with, he just kind of fell into this. He makes $11 an hour and must work across two different agencies just to get enough hours to be able to pay his bills. But he told me something I had never really thought about before. And that's what happens if one of his patients needs to go into the hospital or worse, if they die. That is correct. You're completely out of work and you do not get paid. It could take a week. In this industry, you never know. That's the issue. You never know. So what he's saying here is that the job already doesn't pay well, but there are so many other kind of factors that come into it. So even though he's only making about $11 an hour, if one of his patients dies or if gets sick or reduces the amount of hours, suddenly then he's left trying to fill this gap, trying to find a patient. How do we kind of make this a better job for clearly a much needed role in our in healthcare? Yep. Edwin's experience is completely the norm. There are a couple of things here. So one is if you're growing really fast, the good news is, is that you have work for Edwin immediately after one customer might go to the hospital or pass on. And so really one part of the benefit of kind of aggregating demand is that you're now creating more stable work 
for the care pros. And I think that we should make explicit something that's implicit in what you and Edwin were talking about there, which is wage is only one factor, but hours is the other really, really important factor. And so Edwin needs the number of hours a week that he needs in order to meet his needs, right? And so you can pay him $50 an hour, but if you only give him 10 hours a week, it's not going to be enough, right? So he needs, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 hours, whatever it is. And it is an unfortunate situation that given the way the laws are structured right now, Edwin cannot work for one agency if he wants to work, for example, 60 hours. He has to work between two agencies. He's forced to find two jobs because of the overtime rules. And let's talk about pay. The median in 2016 for all personal care workers was around 1050 an hour. Do we need to completely rethink how we are valuing this part of the economy, given how many people we need to get interested in this profession? So I think that there's a lot of parts of pay. I think that we have to just remember that when we talk about pay, first and foremost, it's actually hours, right? It's actually, did someone get the full number of hours in that week that they wanted to work? Because even something like, let's just, you know, do a real quick exercise. The difference between, you know, 40 and 30 hours is 25%, right? So that's, you know, kind of like $15 down to $12. So we should just recognize that it's both pay and it's hours, and the hours are usually the thing that actually hurts more in a way than the pay rate. That said, one of the things Honor does actually is uses the fact that we have efficiency in technology to turn around and take some of those savings and be able to pay a home care worker, usually on average about 10% above what the local pay rate is. So it's another benefit of scale and technology that we're able to turn into a benefit for the care pros. I think the thing that's hard without government intervention is to um, raise the rate on care pros to the point where then customers will just not be willing to pay, right? So there's always a, a balance, like, you know, how much can you get the customer to pay? And then how much does that mean you can pay the care pro? And really, you have to recognize that the care pro is the product, right, in home care. And... If the product has trouble caring for itself, so 56% of non-medical home care workers are on government assistance programs, 56%, which means by our government standards, they are not able to care for themselves without government assistance. And so we're asking these people to turn around and care for other people, even though they're in a place where they can't actually care for themselves. And so we have to find solutions to help these folks better care for themselves and to be in a better place in their own lives. But if we go back to pay for a second, you're paying above market rates. But even an extra 10% on top of an average wage of about $10, that's only an extra dollar on top of that. Why can't we pay these people more just given the work that they're doing? The people that I've spoke with say they really need to make 15 to $18 an hour to really kind of have a living wage. Can we get to that point? What are the hurdles to, to doing so? The real big challenge is there is no funding source for non-medical home care other than private individuals being willing to pay for non-medical home care. And so, you know, if that's a customer of ours and they're on fixed income, right, they do not work any longer, they're probably in not particularly good health, they're actually taking a very substantial portion of their savings and they're putting it into non-medical home care. 
And then that then dictates the amount of money that they're kind of able to spend in today's world and then dictates the amount of money that you're able to pay to a care pro. And if you cannot get the customer to pay more, right, then you cannot pay the care pro more. So that's why I say what we actually have to do as an industry like is find other sources of money that would help, let's say, push up this industry, right? Push up this workforce like insurers or like the government if we wanted to kind of make a structural change on wage rates. Because the, the challenge that we face is that the elderly who need this care, they don't have enough money to pay enough to be able to get care at, at kind of those higher rates. Right. So if they don't have enough money to pay enough, I think we go back to your point of we need to think more creatively. We need to find that structural change somewhere. This is certainly something the care workers want to see. These are the people that really provide the backbone of our healthcare system now. And they often say that they don't even have healthcare themselves. Let's go back to Tanisha, the healthcare aide we heard from earlier who lives in Akron, Ohio. She detailed the kind of benefits she lacks right now. So for the company that I work for, I feel like I am a little bit underpaid. Do I like the job in itself? Yes. Do I like my client? Actually adore my client, actually, and her family. They're really great people. But, like, as far as my job, I do feel like I'm underpaid. We don't get paid for uh, any type of travel, like, say, if my client needs me to go to the uh, store or run any type of errands or anything. I don't get paid any type of mileage for that. If I pick up shifts, I don't get paid, you know, an additional amount for that. Like, just for, like, there's, like, no really courtesy, you know, no thank you money or any type of thing like that. It's just I strictly get paid nine fifty an hour, and that's just it. And what I thought was interesting from Tanisha and a couple other people I spoke with, She's looking to do something else. Like a lot of people, she feels that this is not a career that she can stay in. Do you think that's something that can be changed too? Is this something that could be a a more sustainable long-term career, something that people can do for years and years and not have to try to jump to something that might provide those benefits or or provide that higher pay? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I think in Tanisha's case, I think there are some things there that just sound pretty terrible. Uh, If you are asked to go, and this is to be frank, just something that I think you've got such uneven quality in this industry. I think some people are really well-meaning and I think uh, sometimes you run into some not so great situations. Um, If she's working for a customer and she's going on errands for that customer and she doesn't have a way to be reimbursed for that travel, for example, uh, that's pretty terrible. And one thing that actually, interestingly, we had to, this kind of an honor innovation is when we need care pros to take shifts quickly because we have a, you know kind of some kind of an emergency situation, we will actually create a throw out a bonus into the system. Customers don't pay it, but Honor will throw out a bonus into the system um, to make it more attractive to care pros to take quickly because we want to make it kind of economically close for them. And then even that point that she made about driving, we see this with care with the kind of lives of care pros all the time. Driving is really really expensive, especially if it involves tolls, and. It's one of the dominant reasons why um, we let care pros choose their customers because we want them to be able to choose how far they want to drive. (laughs) So I think that there are some things in her story that I think are just so common in the industry and it's so sad that we are there. But to your question on kind of, can this be a profession? And one of our 
deepest kind of beliefs was that people have to be rewarded for performing because if people do get a reward for performing, then they will perform better. And if there's no reward, there's no incentive, right? So it just goes back to delivering a better product to your customers. And so Honor actually, we designed it with wage rate tiers based on performance and based on experience and based on skills. And that's important because it means that you're creating a path up for people on wage rate. And so I think that it's absolutely possible. I think it's actually necessary to make this a profession. And a profession is almost defined as something I do that I get better at over time where I work my way up. I want to go back to what you said about people in this profession being called unskilled. That really surprised me, given what we know about the trends and also how challenging this work is. I would deem them as a very skilled part of the labor force. Do you think we're going to get to a point where some supply and demand economics come into play here and this becomes a more lucrative way for people to make money? Are you hopeful that this will eventually change? So it's a really great question because there's an, there's another way to answer the question on why are care pros paid what they're paid? And the answer is because government has not intervened, it is literally just a pure marketplace, right? It, it They are paid the amount customers are willing to pay for them. And if you tried to customer charge the customer more, they would not pay and then the care pro wouldn't be paid. So it, it actually, to your point, it, it is a marketplace. And as we get deeper and deeper into the need for more and more care pros and supply becomes tighter and tighter, that will absolutely either drive up the cost of home care or customers will just not be able to pay that rate. And then the kind of customers will have to find another way to get care, right? So one of the two things will happen without finding another source of funding. Really strike you as interesting, though, that we if we talk about the future of jobs, that that so little of this has been talked about by the Trump administration. You don't see caregivers talked about in the same light as steel workers or coal miners. It just doesn't seem like we're we're really acknowledging as a government that this is the future of jobs. Particularly if we want then the government to pay for these roles. I think the good news is that our politicians, broadly speaking, care about the elderly as a population. And I think, broadly speaking, our politicians also understand that we need to figure out how to create an economic system that helps people do really important work and give them opportunity and lift them up. And those two issues are bipartisan, which is great news. So I think that to get the government to help, I'm going to leave the Trump administration out of this, and I'm going to say the, the government, the federal government. To get the federal government to help, I think what we have to recognize that this is about caring for the elderly. And it's about creating opportunity so that people can lift themselves up through meaningful work. If put in that light, right, and if put in front of our policymakers, then I'm hopeful. But a challenge that we have is that this industry is so fragmented, right? And because of the fragmentation, this industry has trouble getting our policymakers to pay attention to it because it doesn't speak with one voice well. Hopefully in time, it's something that we can help with, but it's a place where having a little more scale would probably help make the policymakers aware 
of the issues and how they could potentially help both the elderly and the care professionals. And I think we learned today that there are millions of workers as well as elderly people across the country who share those same hopes. Thank you so much for joining us, Seth. This has been a great conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'm glad you guys are covering this very, very important topic. That was Seth Sternberg of Honor talking to us about ways that we can and why we must modernize the current market for home health care. Chip, there at the end, when Seth was talking to us about how this really is a bipartisan issue, that really struck me. He's right. There's no one who doesn't agree that we need to make this a more worthwhile job for the millions of people that we need doing it, as well as just a great system for our elderly. But Given that we know that, given that everyone agrees that this needs to change, why aren't we hearing more about this profession? Why aren't we seeing more in the news about more people that we need interested in working in these jobs? I think part of it is because of just the reality of what this job is. It's not very attractive to people right now, given all the different problems that we've mentioned in the show of it being just underpaid and a job that really just comes with a lack of respect. I spoke with Sarah Fredrickson. She's a 42-year-old home care provider who lives in Carrollton, Georgia, which is near Atlanta. Here's what she said she often feels like. I like working in home health care, don't get me wrong, but there, there are days when I just feel, I really do feel like I am nothing more than a housekeeper. If I really wanted to do house cleaning, I'd go work for a hotel and probably get paid more to do it. And so what Sarah told me is that she frequently thinks about maybe working at a hotel. She could be a housekeeper at a hotel, make more money, and the job would be easier. So none of this is something that a marketing campaign, for instance, could solve. Hey, come be a home care provider. This is a job of the future. Well, the reality is it's not a great job right now. I think that's the question that we all need to solve if this really is the future of our economy. This comes back to a larger question that we need to answer of how do we find meaning and value in the world of work as it grows and progresses? If this is going to be such a big job category that we're going to need so many Americans interested in, we also need to figure out how to make this a sustainable income as well as a worthwhile profession for these people. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes and Google Play. It really helps get the word out. Also, we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and the issues that we've discussed on LinkedIn using hashtag work in progress. You can find me on LinkedIn at Caroline Fairchild and Twitter at CFair1. And to follow Chip Cutter, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Chip Cutter. This week's show was produced by Florencia Ariando, Wes Wingo, and David Pond. We'll see you again soon.